Welcome to this special episode of Do Better Research, which presents the Knowledge Exchange Talks from the University of Suffolk Gender and Sexuality Research Interest Group. In this episode, we have Dr. Catherine Allen presenting her research, We Need to Hold the Hope for This, Feminist Epistemology, Patriarchal Realism and the Uses of Utopianism. Dr. Catherine Allen is a research assistant in the Centre for Abuse Research at the University of Suffolk. She has a cross-disciplinary research experience in sociology, philosophy and literature, with strong research interests in sexual and gender-based violence and the evolution of feminist ending violence movements, feminist and social epistemology and philosophy of literature, mind and emotions. Um, so today I'll be talking about a piece of research which I actually conducted in 2019 uh, for my Master's in Women and Child Abuse Studies at the London Metropolitan University. Um, so the genesis of the research um, was my own involvement with the rape crisis movement. So initially I came on board as a volunteer and then I was a paid worker subsequently and then actually now I'm a volunteer once again. Um, and this movement between kind of the paid and the voluntary roles is actually not atypical for the rape crisis movement. There tends to be slightly more porous boundaries between the two uh, for historical reasons that I'll discuss during the presentation. Um, so I'll primarily be focusing on one strand of the research which I undertook then, um, which I've actually gone back to and subsequently elaborated and rethought in light of ongoing reading and research um, that I've been doing since. Um, and so it's looking at rape crisis centre workers' responses to two interlinked organisational precepts. First, that sexual violence is a cause and a consequence of gender inequality. And second, that sexual violence is something that we can work towards ending. Um, and I found this to be a very powerful concept and objective, um, but it's one that was often met with incredulity when I would kind of talk about my work with other people, when I would be recruiting volunteers. I think it's something that seems like quite a big ask to people and almost kind of radically utopian. Um, so this is kind of the genesis of the research, and it's also framed by my own experiences as a volunteer. Um, and this is a quote I came across while I was um, doing the research, which I think is quite an interesting evocation of what it is that differentiates feminist consciousness from a kind of more proto-feminist or pre-feminist awareness that maybe things are a little unfair or unfortunate. Um, and so the quote is, Feminists are not aware of different things than other people. They are aware of the same things differently. Um, and that's a quote by the philosopher and Marxist Sandra Bartke. And essentially, um, her idea was that feminists see these things not just as lamentable, but actually as changeable. So the a necessary element of feminist consciousness and kind of almost the, the origins of feminist consciousness is the idea that you can make a significant change. So um, sexual violence was first defined as a distinctively social problem in the late 1960s to the early 1970s. Um, so this is something that kind of around the same time, possibly a little earlier, the African-American civil rights movement, um, kind of women activists within the movement were um, testifying about their experiences of sexual violence predominantly from uh, white American men 
um, which was a very racialized form of sexual violence, um, and it was kind of born of the legacies of slavery. Um, and then also the kind of uh, feminist second wave in the kind of early 1970s. Again, women were kind of coming together. They were attending these consciousness raising speakouts, um, which really enabled women to join the dots between individual experiences of sexual violence and gendered violence. Um, and so when I say that, that it was defined for the first time as a social problem, um, so obviously people had some awareness of sexual violence. Obviously, it's always been something that people have known about. Um, but previously, it might have been understood as kind of the collision of a, a kind of an individually deviant perpetrator or perhaps um, an incautious or provocative victim. It wasn't necessarily seen as something that was socially rooted and caused by kind of changeable social factors. Uh, so feminist consciousness raising enabled women to to link together their experiences to see that actually these are really common experiences. They're not necessarily due to individual failings or, or kind of mistakes within them, um, but it was often perpetrated by men and boys they knew, and that wider cultural and gender norms are actually colluding with and supporting sexual violence. Um, so there are all kinds of factors that are coming together to create this culture of impunity um, for perpetrators and that was preventing victim survivors from understanding and talking about their experiences. Uh, so, for example, to return to the idea of the, um, the African-American civil rights activism, uh, there was the construction of some women, so African-American women, as being unrapeable, as almost being there, um, you know, and it being fine to perpetrate sexual violence against them. Um, or other women perhaps were seen as, as deserving of sexual violence. And so by engaging in this consciousness raising and raising awareness around um, the commonality of these experiences and the fact that women of all different types were having these same experiences, so maybe it wasn't you know, an individual failing, um, it enabled them to redress what the feminist philosopher Miranda Fricker terms hermeneutical injustice. Um, so women were engaging in collective knowledge construction and cultivation of hermeneutical, which means interpretive, uh, resources that helped women to make sense of formerly unspeakable phenomena. Uh, so things that were common but didn't necessarily have a specific name or weren't necessarily viewed as a kind of societal issue. So things like marital rape, workplace sexual harassment. Um, and I think it is important to note that marital rape, even within um, England, wasn't um, a crime until the early 1990s. So I think you can see that in the kind of period that this was emerging, that was quite a radical notion, the idea that, that there was such a thing as rape within marriage. Um, and crucially, elaborating these, these kind of shared interpretive resources enabled women to envision an alternative and to grasp their situation as changeable. So to kind of elaborate a bit more on the idea of epistemic injustice. Um, so epistemic injustice actually means um, an injustice in, in relation to knowledge. Um, and there's kind of two main forms of epistemic injustice, um, which is hermeneutical injustice. Um, so that's a gap in the collective interpretative resources um, puts someone at an unfair disadvantage when it comes to making sense of their social experiences. Uh, so if a woman encounters workplace sexual harassment in a culture that still lacks that concept. Um, and equally, there's testimonial injustice, um, which is when prejudice causes a hearer to give a deflated level of credibility to a speaker's word. And crucially, both forms of injustice, they're 
they're not just individually arising, but they're directional, they're socially caused. So these are injustices that are specifically associated with marginalisation and oppression. Um, so, for example, a woman won't be able to talk about her experiences or an African-American woman, for example, may not be believed when she tries to speak out about her experiences. So in order to comprehend and speak about one's experiences as a member of a disadvantaged group and to enact social change, one requires an adequate vocabulary. A vital part of feminist work around sexual violence has therefore been to provide names that describe women's experiences. Naming involves making visible what was invisible and defining as unacceptable what was acceptable. Um, and so that's a quote by the feminist sociologist Liz Kelly. Um, and yes, it's just without the ability to name what's happening to you, obviously it can be much more challenging to be able to kind of um, create these links with other people who have the same experiences and to create accountability for those who are um, perpetrating these wrongs. Um, and it's important to note that these, um, having these names, having these hermeneutical injustices rectified through creating this shared vocabulary is only a necessary condition, not a sufficient condition for ameliorating those wrongs. So just because we have these concepts doesn't mean that they'll necessarily, you know, that the, the wrongs that we're describing will melt away. It's just the beginning of addressing these. Um, and I think both forms of epistemic injustice are highly relevant, not just to women who've actually experienced sexual violence um, in the form of rape or, or child sexual abuse, but also to women as a whole, whose lives are often affected um, by the threat of sexual violence or the, or the kind of, often a sense of uncertainty, like, like how to interpret certain experiences. Was something a near miss or was someone simply being paranoid? It's kind of, there's this idea of the right amount of panic, uh, which the feminist philosopher Fiona Vera Gray talks about, which is a kind of, um, it's an epistemic ambiguity um, around actually to what extent is, is um, fear ever justified? It can be very hard to tell. And that's another area in which women are maybe epistemically disadvantaged in relation to sexual violence. So rape crisis centres emerged as part of this wider epistemic and political project. Um, so they were born of US grassroots feminist activism, but they quickly spread to other countries, including Britain. Um, and one of the foundational precepts of the rape crisis movement was its gendered and politicised account of sexual violence. Um, which acts to denaturalise the current prevalence, distribution and societal reception of sexual violence, um, viewing it not just as an immutable natural phenomenon, but a social one that's amenable to change. Uh, it asserts that sexual violence is both a cause and a consequence of gender inequality, um, thereby providing victim survivors with a compelling alternative framework for understanding and communicating about their experiences, um, and I think also very powerfully, it has an institutional ethos of believing women and regarding them as credible informants, which I think nowadays is perhaps even more radical than than um, the hermeneutical side of things. Um, but yes, both are kind of, I think, very epistemically significant. So the evolution of rape crisis centres. Um, so from their inception, rape crisis centres in the US and elsewhere were designed not only to support victim survivors, but also to mobilise efforts for social and political change, working not just to ameliorate, um, but to end sexual violence. Um, so as you can see, there, there's been a, a kind of shift um, 
from the inception of rape crisis centres to kind of where we are now. Um, so early rape crisis centres aim to embody their egalitarian values through collective and non-hierarchical organisational structures um, and were often staffed by volunteers rather than professionals. Um, and they kind of had, um, rather than being established as a sort of charity, it was more a kind of mutual aid approach. So it was this idea that actually, rather than it being professionals and victims or survivors, it was actually women supporting women um, around a shared form of oppression. So it was kind of a, an ethos of solidarity, reciprocity and mutuality. Um, however, through the 1990s, there was a kind of wave of professionalism, um, professionalisation and insider drift, um, with centres reporting a pressure to de-emphasise or relinquish some of their more challenging ideals and working practices. So, for example, um, with an increasing reliance on mainstream funding, there was a kind of movement towards um, having trustee boards or, or kind of developing um, more of a management structure. Um, and there was also more of a shift to service provision, um, often incorporating trauma talk and medicalised discourses. Um, so kind of going from this viewpoint that that women are kind of women in a patriarchal society, it would maybe be looking at them as survivors with PTSD. Um, without necessarily dispensing with, with earlier precepts, definitely there's still a strong feminist ethos, um, but there has been this kind of clear shift over time. Um, and a lot of that is around um, kind of accountability to funders. So kind of in the early days, maybe it was a more grassroots model, whereas now um, a lot of rate crisis centres will be dependent on funding from kind of central government uh, branches like the Ministry of Justice. They'll be also receiving funding from police and crime commissioners, um, from CCGs um, and from trusts and foundations. So you can see it's there's kind of more red tape, there's more of an expectation around reporting and professionalism. Um, and interestingly, in spite of increasing awareness of sexual violence and strategic commitments from the government, um, there has actually been a significant decline in rape crisis centres. Um, so in 1984, there were 68 in England and Wales, um, and today there are just 39. Um, which is interesting because arguably there's more awareness than, than maybe ever before of the kind of enormity of sexual violence of of its kind of pandemic status uh, globally and yet um, in terms of kind of concrete investment um, maybe we're we're not there yet um, and so those that remain tend to employ more paid staff um, there's obviously more of an emphasis on um, kind of counselling and, and things like that um, and they will be accountable to their funders so there's something of a double bind because rape crisis centres are still, um, they're still avowedly feminist, that's still one of their central precepts, and yet they're also expected to make themselves legible and palatable to mainstream funders. And here are two quotes from the Rape Crisis National Service Standards 2020, that I think are illustrative of these kind of powerful changes and continuities. So the first quote, in all aspects of what they do, Organisations challenge social tolerance of sexual violence and gender inequality and work from the core belief that it is preventable. So as you can see, the kind of the central uh, politicised account of sexual violence is still there and it's one of the, the kind of national standards for rape crisis centres. And then the other quote, um, in a climate of competitive funding with ever decreasing resources, Funders and commissioners need to be assured of the quality and professionalism of the services they are purchasing and the positive difference these services will make for service users. 
so you can see there's this kind of shift to very much a service provision and a, a kind of quality assurance point of view and definitely a kind of move away from the idea that this is a grassroots we're all in it together kind of mutual aid kind of program so where are we today arguably um i think feminist activism has already so radically changed our ideas about sexual violence that it might seem kind of archaic or obsolete to be talking about well there's still this remaining hermeneutical injustice um so do prevailing understandings of sexual violence that we have now um, satisfactorily account for the gender distribution of sexual violence perpetration and victimization so i think feminist activism and, and theorizing has been indisputably incredibly successful in kind of changing many of the more um, misogynistic and victim blaming ideas around sexual violence but i would say perhaps um now we may have shifted to a more individualistic or psychologizing approach so there's the cycle of abuse model this idea that that rapists are craving power and control um which is often a very gender neutral or degendered um account um so does having this this account which doesn't necessarily talk about patriarchy or kind of how gender sexual violence is does this actually work for women living in a sexual, sexually violent society? Does this work for survivors of any gender in making sense of their experiences? And if not, what are the epistemic impacts of this lacuna, this gap in theorising, which kind of almost skips over the very gendered nature of sexual violence? Uh, so what kind of implications does this have for survivors? And does the feminist explanatory model employed within the rape crisis movement, so the idea that sexual violence is a cause and a consequence of gender inequality, does that afford a better alternative for survivors and for women more generally? So in order to investigate um, kind of how women were responding to the feminist explanatory model of sexual violence and the idea of ending sexual violence, um, I decided to undertake qualitative research um, with women working in rape crisis centres. Um, so I conducted semi-structured, open-ended interviews with a purposive sample of rape crisis centre workers, both paid and voluntary, who had completed the volunteer training. Um, and those interviews were between 45 minutes to two hours duration. Um, and those were recorded and verbatim transcripts were produced. Uh, so the interview schedule was designed to explore how salient, plausible and meaningful participants found the gendered account of sexual violence during the volunteer training. So kind of how present did they find that idea throughout the training? Did they find that to be a plausible account of kind of the etiology of sexual violence? And did they find that kind of personally meaningful and meaningful as a way of thinking about um, kind of not just their own experiences, but maybe society as a whole? Um, and I then conducted a thematic analysis of those transcripts. So the participants were nine women from two rape crisis centres in the east of England, three from Home Centre, so the centre that I was involved with as a volunteer, and six from Sister Centre. Uh, they were predominantly white British, eight of the nine participants, and uh, one was white mixed. Um, five were heterosexual, two were bisexual and two preferred not to say, and three had disability or long-term health conditions. So as you can see, fairly homogenous in terms of ethnicity, which, which maybe will kind of limit the findings to a certain extent. Um, 
but somewhat more diverse in terms of sexuality and uh, disability. Um, and there's quite a range in terms of how long they'd worked at the Rape Crisis Centre. So I think the shortest was around um, five months, um, whereas the longest was seven years. So there's quite a, a range of experience there. So the findings. Um, so it, perhaps somewhat naively, I'd originally anticipated more of a straightforward conversion narrative or, or a kind of um, epiphany almost. Whereas in actuality, it was far more nuanced than that. Um, so all the participants found the feminist explanatory model salient and plausible as a kind of societal level explanation. Uh, all nine participants agreed that a gendered analysis had informed their training and that sexual violence was obviously or even tautologically linked to gender in some significant and pre-theoretically striking way. So it was almost a kind of... Um, even before they'd kind of gone to their first training, they they were like, well, of course it's a gendered um, experience. Um, and the majority, although not all participants, found the feminist explanatory model personally personally meaningful. So they found it useful in thinking about their own experiences, in naming and interpreting them. However, only one related to the rape crisis in England and Wales mission statement of ending sexual violence as straightforwardly comforting or even remotely realisable. So there was a kind of theme within um, some of the findings that I found quite interesting at the time and I've kind of returned to since then in light of later reading that I've done. Um, and the phrase that kept coming into my mind as I was reading these these quotes and, and kind of thinking about them was uh, this kind of this, this kind of biological pessimism or what I've termed patriarchal realism. So it was this kind of cynicism about the idea that sexual violence is something that you can end, whether that's linked to these kind of um, biological traits or whether it's just really um, strong kind of gender dispositions that reproduce themselves. It was this real um, kind of lack of faith um, that things can be different. Um, and that's a phrase that I've kind of slightly borrowed and tweaked from the writer Mark Fisher, um, who kind of coined the phrase capitalist realism. Um, and it's the idea that there is no alternative, that the way we are now in our society is kind of is basically the best we can get and we can only kind of make these these mild um, modifications to it. So if I just read out some of the quotes that kind of that revealed a much more complicated um, response to the idea of ending sexual violence than I'd originally anticipated. Um, so Elizabeth said, you know, it's a bit like the poor are always with us. Sexual violence will always be happening. I mean, you're sort of looking at an ideal utopia, which we'll never see. So I don't think it is preventable in the way that you can somehow change attitudes and change how some people look at things and how some people behave. But, you know, there's always going to be people who behave badly, always people who behave violently, and always people who do whatever they take to get what they want. I mean, that's the human condition. Uh, similarly, Ella said... I don't know how I feel towards that question. Preventable? I'd like to say yes. I think within my personal sphere, smaller things feel preventable. But anything more drastic or more structural feels overwhelming. And I hate that I think that. I don't want to think that. But I guess I do at this point. Um, but right now, if I think, oh, is this preventable? Then I think, is gender inequality preventable? And then I think of all the terrible things in the world. And I think, ah, I don't know. Um, and Bryony, 
said, uh, it's not going to happen, is it? Would it ever end? I don't think it will end in my lifetime. It's illegal. It's immoral. But then, you know, murder's illegal and immoral, and there's huge penalties for that. And that's generally seen by most people as an absolute social wrong, but it still happens. Just as you were saying that, it suddenly occurred to me just the realities of reproduction. You know, these biological things that are unchangeable. I wonder if they're going to shackle us in a way as well. I'm just trying to unpick it as I'm saying it. You know, that does make women more vulnerable. It does mean that the man can leave and the woman cannot generally with children and so forth. So there's always going to be this biological patriarchy, for want of a better word. Um, and similarly, Melissa said, gradually, hopefully, each generation will sort of introduce a change. So I don't know if it will ever go away because there's such a, I don't think it's, I think gender wise, men tend to lash out. So as you can see, they're not necessarily endorsing that position, but there's this kind of flickering between thinking, is this something that can end? Because obviously, to a certain extent, it's very obviously gendered and obviously has its roots in social um, kind of norms and, and kind of oppression. And yet at the same time, it's something that's so omnipresent. There's this kind of disbelief at the idea of, of ending it. So they related to it in a much more complex and ambivalent way than I'd predicted. Um, and then conversely, there was another um, theme that I detected among just three participants, um, which was the idea of holding hope for this. So that's, that's um, how one of the participants characterised the attitude that they hold to the idea of ending sexual violence. Uh, so Rose said, I remember the first time thinking, well, that's just impossible. Um, but there can't be any other goal. That has to be the goal. And it might seem impossible at times, almost all the time. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Uh, Elizabeth, who was very pessimistic about the idea of actually successfully ending it, um, she kind of had an interesting perspective on this as well um, when she was asked kind of how she relates to the idea of ending sexual violence. Um, so she also said, Certainly eradication would be an ideal. I suppose we have to have these goals because otherwise we're not going to, you're not going to strive unless the goal's big enough, are you? I mean, rape crisis needs to have a mission statement, don't they? Which is overarching with this is what we want to achieve. I mean, they can't just say, oh, well, we're just going to try and help women. And, you know, we're just going to try and make things a little bit easier for women and a little bit safer. And that wouldn't do at all. Um, and Danielle, who's, um, who's quote, provides the, the name for this theme, said, if I'm honest, I think when I did the training, I thought, well, that's not going to happen. Like, I genuinely thought, well, I don't see how that's going to happen. Um, however, after years of kind of being involved as a volunteer and when she's speaking to other volunteers now, when I get a sense sometimes that other volunteers feel that way, I'm the one to say we need to hold the hope for this. Like hold the hope is a phrase we use quite a lot when things are really difficult to be able to kind of see positives. And I think that having a notion of ending sexual violence is imperative for the work that we do. And we couldn't do it. Like if we never thought that was going to happen, we should just go home. So. As you can see, that's it's quite an interesting um, kind of way of relating to the goal of ending sexual violence. Um, so it's certainly not a case of women coming into the training kind of with a pre-feminist kind of um, idea of sexual violence that then kind of melts away in the face of this explanatorily superior feminist model. But actually, there's these contradictory kind of 
models or ways of seeing that are existing in tension. Um, and I think that last set of quotes, it, it's interesting because the people who are simultaneously quite pessimistic about the idea of, of achieving that goal, they kind of see it as something you have to have. So it's almost this kind of dialectical movement between two impossibilities. It's impossible to believe that you can actually end sexual violence, but at the same time, it's impossible to engage in the work and in the, the kind of um, theorising and activism unless you have that hope, unless you're holding that hope, it, you should just go home, as Danielle said. Um, and so kind of those three quotes, although that was a minority of the participants, which is another reason it's something I've kind of gone back and puzzled over by myself, um, I kind of thought, well, actually, to a certain extent, any explanatory model of sexual violence that we have at this point in history, you know, with the knowledge that we have now, is underdetermined to a certain extent. So we can't we can't kind of go and test it by looking at a, a non-patriarchal society. We can't kind of go 100 years in the future and see, well, how much has this changed now? So given that, given that it will be underdetermined to a certain extent, it's reasonable to consider what work do we want any model of sexual violence to do and what are the pragmatics and what are the perlocutionary effects of different models. Um, so when I say perlocutionary, it's it's kind of what are the the kind of conceivable repercussions of that on other people, on the people who are hearing about this idea of sexual violence. So, oh, and here's a, a final quote, which I think nicely kind of... Um, sums up why maybe um, we need to hold that hope and have a slightly more radical perspective. Um, so Zoe was, was saying, um, I still to this day, I don't really see how it's possible living within the society we have to end sexual violence. I think my reaction to it has become more nuanced over time, but I still think that while we have the patriarchy, I think we can't end sexual violence. We'd need to just burn the whole thing down and start afresh. I think I found it a difficult concept because I, I just don't see how we can go from here to there. I don't see how we can say, let's end sexual violence and then have it end. I don't have a clear path. I didn't at the time and I don't now. I think we need to start a new system. And I think that's actually a very fair um, critique of the idea that, that we can just have a kind of feminist movement that, that has just this one goal um, that's not kind of tied into a broader social agenda. I think that's a very, um, very perceptive um, comment from Zoe. And, um, and I think that's certainly something to take forward into kind of further research on this. Um, but yes, yeah, so getting to the kind of idea of what we want our model of sexual violence to do for us. Um, there are several different ways of understanding or responding to questions of the form what is X or what is it to be an X? So Sally Haslanger, um, she talks about the different kinds of definitions that we can have. Uh, so there's conceptual definitions. What is our concept of X? There's descriptive definitions. So what is the extension of X? Does it track a natural or a social kind? Um, and both those, you can kind of see that there is an applicability to sexual violence. Um, but most interestingly is her idea of an analytical or revisionary um, definition. So what is the point of our concept of X? What work is X doing? And this type of definition is responsive to, yet not limited by everyday usage. Um, and more to my point, why is X and can we end it? So you can kind of almost embed that into your definition. Um, so you're not just thinking about kind of what work is it doing, but but kind of why is it and, and kind of um, 
does understanding sexual violence as a distinctively social kind um, that's kind of linked to these social um, structures, does that actually already begin to unpick the place that sexual violence has in our society and to unpick that impunity that still exists to a large extent? Um, and a, a quote from Sally Haslanger that I think is um, quite relevant is the idea that good theories are systematic bodies of knowledge that select from the mass of truths those that stress are broader cognitive and practical demands. So what are the cognitive and practical demands that the feminist explanatory model serves? Um, well, firstly, I think the fact that rape crisis centres are already subject to immense pressure from funders to demonstrate tangible outcomes for service users with finite resources. So without some kind of animating vision of ending sexual violence, of sexual violence as something that is not just unjust or gendered, but it's actually, it's unjust in a particular way that we have within our power to, to kind of work towards ending it. Um, that can make the kind of mission work of, of charities like uh, Rape Crisis so much more disincentivized and difficult to justify. So we almost have to have this this kind of horizon focus, this um, this kind of utopianism as a method of continuing with the hugely demoralizing work that's involved in rape crisis um, centre work. Um, and so to relinquish that model would also be colluding with the individualization and depoliticization of sexual violence. Uh, so the dominant story of rape as a problem for women and not a problem for society. So there's the idea that, yes, it's it's not someone's fault if, if they're raped, but then on the other hand, why were they out walking at night? You know that rape is always going to happen, etc., etc. So if we don't have this idea, if we're not holding this idea, how much more challenging is it to um, kind of advocate for survivors, to... Um, to kind of criticise the culture of impunity around perpetrators and around uh, victim blaming. Um, and also, I think there's a, a very real risk whereby you create almost a, a professional feminist class, so feminist managerialism, where the symptoms of rape are interpreted and managed by professional experts um, and feminist organisations intercede to achieve piecemeal legal and policy reforms that at worst merely serve as an alibi for a state that's indifferent or even actively hostile to marginalised women. Um, and I think it's helpful to give a concrete example of what I mean here. So if you think about the recent Domestic Abuse Act 2021, that's introduced hugely helpful reforms. Um, it's introduced a statutory definition of domestic abuse. It's um, introduced a statutory duty for uh, tier one local authorities to provide safe, supported accommodation for survivors. But at the same time, there are swathes of women who are completely excluded from that. So migrant women with no recourse to public funds, um, they're excluded from many forms of um, refuge and accommodation provision, and they face so many more barriers to accessing the safety and the justice that they deserve. Um, and I think you need to be careful to a large extent when you're kind of entering into um, negotiations to achieve these reforms to protect some women um, when you know that others will be excluded. Um, so what are what I've called utopianism as method? What are the uses of that? Um, I think the rape crisis movement needs a compelling vision of the good to work towards, not an alternative to kind of service oriented work. So the the day to day bread and butter work that rape crisis centres are doing to support survivors. Um, 
but I would argue that actually having this vision, having this kind of simultaneous um, stream of activism and advocacy actually served to sustain that work under inimical social, political and economic conditions. And it actually serves as a counterweight to the kind of Sisyphean work of what Danielle termed mopping up after perpetrators. So if we don't have this, this kind of end in our vision of, of ending sexual violence, of, of kind of changing the, the ongoing rape and, and sexual abuse, actually it becomes so much harder to continue engaging that work without um, kind of getting many of the um, the impacts that, that people engaged in trauma work have, such as vicarious trauma, secondary traumatic stress and burnout. So at what cost do we relinquish this more politicised idea about sexual violence and then focus purely on kind of more therapeutic um, and treatment models? So just to give a quick recap, um, the impetus for the research was testing my kind of hypothesis that I had about the epistemic benefits of the feminist expansion model and involvement with rape crisis centre work. Uh, so my original hypothesis was that the model supplants other inferior understandings of sexual violence and grants women a more meaningful framework for understanding society and their own experiences. Um, my findings were that it inevitably exists in tension with other models um, and participants would invoke alternative frameworks, so sexual violence is part of the human condition, sexual violence is linked to sexed kind of attributes or like really deeply rooted dispositions. Um, and also I would say we need to attend to the pragmatics and the implications of the feminist explanatory model. So what work does the prospect of ending sexual violence actually do for the ending broad movement? And conversely, what are the epistemic and the effective and the perlocutionary impacts of what I've termed uh, biological pessimism or patriarchal realism? So the suspicion that sexual violence is an ineradicable aspect of the human condition. And I would argue that the impacts of that are fairly dire and they're kind of linked in a lot of responsabilisation of victims that we still see. This idea that, well, as it's inevitable and there are these perpetrators out there, that it's only kind of sensible to take all these precautions and engage in all this daily safety work. Um, and also that it's it's just, um, I'd say it's emotionally very demoralising for people engaged in, in um, feminist activism and work, this idea that, no, it's this unchangeable kind of feature of, of humanity that, that we can't end. Um, so yes, I think if you're considering the, the impacts of the feminist expansion model, I think it it very clearly makes sense as part of the rape crisis movement um, and I would hope it's it's not a part of the movement that's um, that's surrendered anytime soon. Thank you.